Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 241, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This episode, there's a bill in the U.S. House and U.S. Senate calling for a federal minimum salary for teachers. Could it actually work its way through Congress, and how might it make a difference? Stay with us. This is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. Our guest this episode will tell us how his school is trying to embrace ChatGPT and other generative AI. Stay with us. everybody, Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, chief academic officer, as well as co-host of the Class Dismissed podcast, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? I am fantastic because I am four days <laughs> from a break. From a break. And I don't know, have we talked about this? Are you doing something special or are you just like laying low? Well, actually, we don't have spring break next week. It will actually be intercession for us. Right. But it's just a slower time where I can really get some things done um, in, in preparation for the next school year. But at the complete, at the total end of the week, as we lead into our actual spring break, yeah, we're going back to Cali and hitting up San Diego and a little Las Vegas. That's awesome. And do you have a lot of friends there still, or is it just a matter of just going oh, and enjoying it? absolutely. I'm born and raised in, from San Diego, so absolutely. That's good stuff. We'll enjoy that and enjoy Las Vegas as well. Well, I'm excited for you. Um, today, I've got a topic that, um, you know, we've talked about pay on here, but we're going to get specific. We're going to talk about the idea of a federal minimum teacher salary. And the reason we're talking about this is because there's not one, but two bills in both chambers of Congress uh, that are actually, well, I can say introduced. They're not probably going to pass, but at least there's a little bit momentum, the fact that both the Senate and the House have bills. So are you ready to learn about this? I mean, I mean, do you first, do you even think this is like a good idea? The idea of like a minimum teacher salary across the country? I would say yes, because in my opinion, there's been some inequality going on for quite a few years. Um, you go out west and your average teacher makes what? $70,000 and you come south and the average teacher was making 30 something thousand dollars. So and I know cost of living is different, but the student loans don't differ. <laughs> that's, that's a fair point. And I'm glad you brought that up because that had not crossed my mind. All right. So we're going to talk about all this. All right. So the two bills is one is HR 9566. It's called the American Teacher Act. It's rep, uh, Representative Frederica Wilson. She's a Democrat from Florida. She's introduced uh-huh. it. And the, the magic number that apparently she is put on as a federal minimum salary for teachers is $60,000. And we'll, we'll dive into those details. What, what makes this significant, her bill was introduced in December. Um, but Senator Bernie Sanders last month in February introduced a complimentary bill. So it's kind of like you have these two, you know, tracks kind of running on both sides. So that's what kind of raised some eyebrows. Um, So I guess what we have to do is kind of talk about that $60,000 number. And one way to kind of do this is you can look at what Maryland did recently. It was uh, just before the pandemic, they passed like this big restructure of their education system as a state 
and they did a lot of research and they have also kind of picked $60,000 as a number to get all their teachers to as a starting minimum salary. And that's not going to happen. It's like a 10 year process, but that's their goal for the whole entire state. And then another track that you can look at is Houston Independent School District. They actually have just started a minimum teacher salary of $61,500. And the reason they did that is because all the districts right around Houston were kicking their butt. Like when they were at 57000 uh-huh. it wasn't enough and they needed to be more competitive. So what are your thoughts for hearing that so far? I mean, it's it's promising. It makes me happy to know that you know, they're willing to go the extra mile to, to get quality teachers. But, you know, hey, let's take it a step further. So what was interesting to me is the Maryland folks, when they did their research, it was kind of like, all right, well, how'd you get that number 60,000? Where did that come from? So what they did was they looked at other jobs where you have to have bachelor's degrees and sometimes master's degrees and certifications, um, such as like architects, accountants, registered nurses, and they kind of use that as a guide. Mm-hmm. And they showed in their data that there's almost like a pay penalty to be a teacher when you compare it. It's almost like a teacher's earn 76 cents on the dollar compared to similar qualified professionals. Um, and in Maryland, they said it's about 80 cents a dollar. Um, so kind of by like taking that information and then trying to, you know, say, how can we get teachers competitive with these other occupations? Um, that's how they got to their $60,000 number. I think that was a smart approach. You know, if you go back in time, teaching was a highly respected profession. Mm-hmm. You did not want the teacher to call home because people reacted and people responded. And somehow over time, that level of respect for the profession, not only did it decline, but young people began to realize that there were other sectors that they could make a profitable living off of, you know, not have as much stress and be passionate about it and 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 still make a difference. So that became began to impact the numbers in our teacher ed programs. So it's not just about paying teachers better, respecting teachers better. It's about keeping the profession alive and having a quality pool of candidates to choose from each year. And the only way you can do that and get those numbers back up in our university programs is to have a quality number like that. And I'm glad that they did the research and understood to compare it to, you know, first responders and and different professions that require some of the same levels of licensure and degree. Yeah. And I think if you go and like poll high school kids, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? A lot of times you hear doctor, lawyer, software engineer, like anything that pays well, right? And that's kind of a lot of times why they have that attitude and why they may pick the program that they pick as they go into college. So if we could just get that teacher number up a little bit more, you may hear a lot more kids say, I want to be a teacher because I like you know, helping people. Well, think about it this way. You know, if you want to be a doctor, that you've got to go to school X number of years, you know what type of degree you have to earn and what it takes to get there. Mm -hmm. Same thing with becoming a lawyer, with becoming a nurse, you know, it's not, it's not as easy to become a registered nurse and you've got all those labs. Well, teachers have to go to school and earn an undergraduate degree and pass licensure. Mm-hmm. So you have the same hoops, so to speak, to jump through, but then you're not, you know, teachers don't feel as worthy as the other professions because after we jump through all these hoops and we take out all of these student loans to get educated and to be highly qualified in our content areas, and then you want to pay us jump change. All right. So let me play devil's advocate a little bit. It, and you, it was kind of what you started off with um, at the top. And so it's like, if 60000 is enough for 
I don't know, let's say Fresno, California, right? If they determine that's enough, does that mean it's too much for South Mississippi? Or, you know, it's kind of well, like... Well, then they need to put a factor in there it, it, tied to that that says 60000 as the base cut based on your cost of living. No one's ever even talked about the cost of living. Mm-hmm. It's true. I mean, I kind of like how it's happened in Houston as a sense of like, no, we, we have to pay 61000 to be competitive with everyone around us, right? Like the market, mm-hmm. it's what the market mm-hmm. bears. But again, mm-hmm. it, what ends up happening is nationally in rural areas or, you know, maybe a, mm-hmm. a less desirable area to live. It's just like no one's paying teachers enough. And how do you reach those kids if they aren't getting paid enough? And then know? and that would be the reason why you would need to offer that to draw quality people into those areas that they're not coming to. I mean, just look at our state. Go back some years when we had a little bit of a problem getting quality teachers in the Delta. Mm -hmm. They put all types of incentives and programs in place, like wiping your loans out, to go to those areas. So they still need to make those considerations when we're looking at rural areas or areas that are not growing economically. But at the end of the day, we need to pay teachers what they're worth in order to keep that, you know, that line of profession and those college programs alive. Yeah, I really think that's what it is for me. It's like in my mind, it's like keep the college programs alive, keep the interest mm-hmm. of good, smart kids. Uh, I'll, I'll give a shout out to um, my son's girlfriend. She's brilliant, you know, like towards the top of her class and she wants to be a teacher. And it really makes me oh, that's proud, wonderful. you know, to, like she's like, I want to get into elementary education. I think her aunt's in it. It's just kind of part of it in her family. And, and mm-hmm. so it's great to hear. Um, but, you know, part of you when you hear that goes, wow, like you've you're super smart. You have all this talent, but is it going to pay enough? Like it crossed my but mind. Not like just I'll, that. I'll be honest. But not just that. Here's what you have to worry about. It's wonderful that she wants to be a teacher. For us, we have to hope she doesn't leave the state. Right. And go over one or two states and make the money that she deserves, touching, tapping into that passion that she's been thinking about all this time, serving children, but then making a living, you know, that's up to her standard. Yeah. That's the kicker right there. So anyhow, I say all this to say, let's keep an eye on bills um, like we're talking about here. Again, that's um, H.R. 9566, the American Teacher Act on the House side. And then, of course, I don't have the actual name of Senator Sanders bill, but um, it's good to hear that there's a discussion about minimum teacher pay. So keep an eye on it. Well, I got to give a shout out to the senator from Florida. It's a friend of mine that is serving on her team, Dr. Felton Cortez Moss, and he is a part of that legwork in pushing that bill. And so I'm really excited to hear you bring it up. Good stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, are you ready for today's bright idea? I'm ready. School districts are struggling to figure out how they should react to ChatGPT. You know, we've covered here on the Class Dismissed podcast that districts like New York City, Oakland, Seattle, they've banned the AI technology due to concerns about cheating. But today's Bright Idea guest is going to offer some perspective on why we should embrace AI software like ChatGPT. Ben Farrell is the assistant head of school at the New England Innovation Academy, the nation's first human-centered design middle and high school. Uh, ben, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you so much, Nick. Great to be here with you. This is exciting because, you know, first off, I'll say anything that we've kind of done on chat GPT on this podcast has mm. a lot of interest. In fact, that's one of the articles or a podcast that we post is our most clicked on story lately. And yeah. it's all kind of been more like, how do we handle this? How do we react to right. it? But here you are like, let's embrace this. Let's figure out how to <laughs> yes. go forward. So I'm really excited to hear your perspective. Um, yeah. Before we dive into it, first, let me try to kind of frame it up like this. Can you think of a a past equivalent to chat GPT or just AI in general 
that changed the way we teach? And what I mean by that is like a graphing mm. calculator or a spell check. What comes to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I think if you went through the generations, there's probably um, every time something came up that felt um, deeply off-putting in a disruptive technology or uh, implement a tool, um, I can imagine that those of us who came before probably felt the same way. So, um, you know, I, I know that uh, I, I've in my, you know, research and I'm trying to do my best to understand uh, generative AI and ChatGPT in, in particular, yeah, I mean, I, I think you can think about spell check. Uh, just the idea, the the worry that we would become <laughs> less able to uh, spell accurately or, or or think on our feet. Um, calculators. I mean, those those things that were disruptive, um, that are normal now and that have been normal for quite some time. In in their moment when they first came out, I, I'm certain they caused some significant shocks in the uh, education system. Do you think though that maybe? this is next level, like maybe even a bigger deal than say a calculator or spell check, or we'd say it's an equivalent. Yeah. I'm laughing just because I, the first time I heard about it, I, I sat down and was kind of messing around with it. And I, and I typed in a prompt as I'm sure many of us did. Right. And I thought, Oh, this is, this is different. This is, this is significant because um, my former Dean hat that I, I was a Dean for five years and where I dealt with a lot of the discipline, I thought, wow, I can imagine it's going to be a lot of kids around the country who are having some conversations around, um, plagiarism and under, you know, just being able to type in a prompt and get a fairly good response back. That is, uh, um, that can be challenging for our, for our teachers out there. So what are you all doing at the New England Innovation Academy? Like, I guess, tell me yeah. what the, the discussion was like when you first did this. This wasn't but like a month ago, a month and a half ago. Yeah. Yeah. It all, it, I mean, for all of us, it, it all just started recently. You know, I, I, I would say that um, just a, you know, a little bit about, about our schools, that we are an independent uh, boarding and day school, grade 6 to 12 brand new, just opened up um, last, so a year ago. And okay. so, you know, coming out of COVID, you know, really disruptive time for many students, We, as I'm sure we all are in education, seeing the challenges of kids who've been, um, th their connection to the world and social, uh, their their social connections have been challenged over these last couple of years. So we're trying to find ways to continually bring our ki bring kids back into the fold and make connections and just basic things that they might have missed of these last couple of years. So um, I, I know I feel very fortunate to be at a place where, with innovation in the title of our school, we have the space to say, "Well, let's let's think about this." Right. So you know, I sat down, and honestly, one of the first conversations I had, you know, we we talked about it at a very high level in our leadership teams, but then I sat down with the upper school, and I just started having a conversation with them about generative AI and ChatGPT specifically. And there were the the normal kind of <laughs> you look at a couple of the kids and you know they think oh he knows about it now there's a bit <laughs> of that like oh he he sees us and um, there was a group of kids who thought we were just going to immediately ban it and I mean frankly you can't ban this kind of thing there's there's no way around it there's this is going to be used this is just I'm sure um, people who know much more about this than I do the tip of the iceberg right um, and so what we started talking about in that room together in our library was. How do we, you know, how might we use this? And, you know, honestly, Nick, one of the things that was really imp impactful and empowering was that in that room of, of young adults, of teenagers, they had sort of the, if we think of a bowling alley, the bumpers in each side and that middle path right down the middle, they had all of it right in there. And so we had some kids who said, you know, Ben, this is going to be the death of original thought. And, 
it's all kind of do, down doom and gloom and our robot overlords, you know, that kind of thing. Then we had kids who um, were on a, on a different side that said, this is going to teach us to ask better questions. And I really, really got excited when I heard that. That's interesting. And then, yeah. yeah and, I, and I can talk a little more about that. But then the kind of that middle path of, you know, maybe this is a way that we shouldn't be using it to write our papers, but maybe this could help me generate some ideas. So just in that initial conversation and having an authentic conversation with our students, we got to a really interesting understanding of what this could be for us. So where are you now that it's yeah. been a little while? Yeah, uh, I think that is an evolving answer. You might ask me next week. It might be a different <laughs> right. place. But, you know, I would say that we're in a place where we've made it really clear that this is not something that um, you should be using to, you have an essay on, you know, Hamlet telling you to write an essay on Hamlet that doesn't sound like ChatGBT wrote it. Like that's not an, that's not what an effective use. You're not learning. Um, and that's not what the spirit of this is. And I, and I know that we will have kids, as everybody will, who will trip up, make some poor decisions. And that's part of the conversation is to help when they trip up, we help them back up, we get up together, and we move on. And, um, you know, so right now where we are is a really interesting space of that where in some of our humanities classes, they're using prompts that come out of ChatGPT to analyze writing to say, you know, listen, what does this look like? One, how, how does it look from a generative AI, like how can we, can we spot it? Can we see it? So that kind of interesting way, mm -hmm. but then also just to analyze um, the grammar breakdown, um, a sentence structure to really, and sort of the flow of a, of a thought, a thoughtful essay. So we're trying to find ways to utilize it there. Um, another way that we're kind of diving into it is, as I'm sure like all of us, as we scramble to understand what this means, I've read a lot of position papers, thoughts from, you know, adults, people like us who have their feelings about it, but I haven't read, you know, what do young adults, what do our students think? And so one of the things we're going to be doing here in the near future is inviting some of the local high school or other, you know, peer schools around us to come in and have a moment where we'll have an expert um, uh, come out and kind of talk about generative AI. What does it mean? How does it created neural networks? You know, all of these pieces, just so there's a basic understanding of it. And then we really want our students to write their own position paper on this and say, you know, they're going to be living with this longer than we will. And than I will, I should say. And I, I want them to have a moment to say, this is what we think we should do with it. And to have that out in the space to talk about, because it's important that it's not just happening to them, that they have, you know, that wisdom in the room that first day, I think writ large could be really impactful. I'm just still trying to wrap my mind around it. I mean, I, I try to look at history to kind of give us be our guide, I guess, a little bit. And and let's take spell check for example, right? Like, sure. are we still today? Now that spell check's been around, mm -hmm. gosh, since the '90s, I guess. Um, are yeah. we still um, teaching spelling in school? Mm. You know, uh, with the same emphasis yeah. that maybe we did in the '80s. I, I, yeah. I, I don't know the answer. To that. It's more of a rhetorical question. Maybe you do. Right. Right. And I mean, probably not, not with the same focus. And, um, but yes, I mean, yes, we are. And probably not in the same way we did, you know, has cursive gone away, you know, <laughs> right. that was a big part of my upbringing as well. So I, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yes, I hear your point on that. So I guess I kind of wonder, like, are we even going to bother to teach kids how to write essays? And hmm. I mean, cause the AI is going to get so good, right? Like, like you yeah. said, tip of the iceberg, five years, right. 10 years, like it's going right. to be scary. Good probably. Right. Um, right. so does that completely change the curriculum? Hmm. That's a wonderful question that I think we all will have to grapple with in different school systems. I'm sure we'll go different ways on that. Um, you know, I, I, I go back to one of the, my conversations with one of my students and that their thought was with that very kind of specific question was that we have got to get better at, about making, 
uh, about the ways that we interact face to face and our emotional, like the emotion of a point that we're making or the way that we get that across. Because as it stands right now, and, and we know, as you just said, Nick, this could change very quickly, sort of that, that human side of what we write and where we go, that's not there yet. And that means we have to, I believe, we have to get sharper on that. And we have to emphasize those skills so that when we're making a point, when we're making, you know, writing an essay, um, or as, as my student says, when we're face to face, these are the pieces that we've got to um, improve on so that we can um, get across that, that human element. You know, as I'm talking to you here, you can't see me, but my hands are moving, you know, right, I'm, right. I'm constantly doing it. That's the stuff that's, that, that's who, um, that's what makes us, us that we, we have to even focus on, I think even more now, if that, if that makes any kind of sense. Well, and I almost wonder, maybe you guys are doing this mm. as a tool. Mm. Should we be having the students? I guess, I guess what I would say is like, all right. So if, if I assign to a student, like write me a, an, an essay about to kill a mockingbird and should students be taught to actually put something in chat GPT and then deconstruct it and reconstruct it using some of what it finds from chat GPT. Cause I say that because right. that's basically how we use a calculator. That's basically how exactly. we use spell check. We don't 100% right. depend on it, but we do use it. Right. I think, I mean, that's a great point. And I think one of the ways that we could think about this is that in the initial drafts of an essay or a writing prompt that, you know, let's, Time, time stamp it, screenshot it, and we all see where it's coming from. And that gets factored into a collective version of, you know, of intelligence. So we're using AI, we're using what we know, and that it's very, a very clear process, transparent, so that as we're writing drafts, we understand where it's coming from, where we're getting information from. And so it's not sort of that, you know, the hidden part three in the morning, I'm behind on my essay, and then, you know, hey, Mr. Farrell, uh, my previous schools, I, I just couldn't get it done. And I, I took a shortcut. And, but if we, imp, if we can bring it into the process and help, and help in the scaffolding, which is difficult. I know that's, you know, some of this stuff feels pie in the sky as being a teacher is it's not an easy job and there's lots going on. Right. But if we can bring it into the process, I think it can actually improve our writing. Um, you know, this is something that I've struggled with in, in my life. Uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time when I got to college, working on my writing in the writing center and my professors taking great, um, you know, <laughs> really being thoughtful with me and, and giving me a lot of space to grow. But this is something that I know as I think back into my late teens, early twenties could have been a really helpful tool for me to become a better writer that it took a lot longer to get to. All right. So, so knowing that, that your school is trying mm. to embrace this, mm. uh, are you all also saying, Hey, we need to run students work through programs like GPT zero that may be able to determine if it like, are you still trying to police it in a way? Or is it just like, mm. no, you know, I think, I think that's a really good question. And I want to be really clear about my school as a, we're brand new and we're very small right now. So we have that benefit of the luxury, quite frankly, of just being small. So we know, as we talked about this at, our, at the leadership team and, you know, in humanities, for example, our teachers just know the kids very, very well. So if a kid who's been struggling <laughs> with their writing right. all of a sudden has got this very pristine looking paper, there's something going on there. You know, I do think that we will, um, there are tools like, like you just said, um, that we might need to use should we find ourselves in a place where it's not being used, um, if it's not being used ethically. And that's part of the conversation that we need to have because going forward, if, if we don't learn how to write and we just lean, lean on this as a crutch, then we all will suffer for it. And so what mm. is your message to mm. 
the educators out there who were like, no, we've got to shut this down. Yeah. I, my, my message is I hear you. And I, and I don't, I don't necessarily disagree. I think it's um, my first thought was, you know, it blew my hair back when I first heard about it and I started kind of messing around with it a little bit. My first thought was, well, does this mean the college essay is now dead? You know, how does, mm-hmm. how do we, what do we do there? Um, I think it's going to make us change. Um, but I, I just don't think that we can ban it. I, I really don't. I, it, it's, our students will find a way, if we ban it, they'll find a way to use it. If we don't find a way to utilize this as a tool to be supportive of where we're going, I think we're missing the boat because this is where the future is leading. And if we're not, if we're not sort of arming our students um, to understand it and best utilize it ethically and thoughtfully, then I think they will be, um, you know, th- that will be something they're going to have to learn later. And they might be put in a, a position that's, you know, in a, uh, a, a not as strong position in the future. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. Like we we can't we can't put this back in the box, right? Mm. But I kind of wonder, like, how long will it take us to react as a society? Like you said, like mm-hmm. you can you still need to know how to write a college essay. You still need to get past at least in most cases an SAT and ACT or somewhere where you have exactly. like some right. sort of standardized test where you have to write mm-hmm. an essay. But mm-hmm. then the question is, should college and testing standardized testing even be testing on that if it's exactly. if it's changing the future anyhow like and right. so i i just kind of there's going to be a transition i think yeah. over the next 10 15 years mm-hmm. no I, I i totally agree with you on that one nick and, and i also i mean i think as a society and i apologize if this is too big so feel free to rein me back in but you know i would just say you know i was on instagram or something recently and i was watching some silly little 30 second video which i don't remember what it was but it was president obama was you know, narrating it. And I thought for a second, why is he doing that? And then I immediately thought, oh, wait, this is not actually President Obama, but it was a deep fake. So it, it was a deep fake. And oh, wow. it was, when you hear it, it sounded just like him. There's no you know, video of it. But then you think about the ways this could be used uh, really negatively through generative AI that what you see, I mean, this has always been throughout human history. It's not what, what you see is not always what is real. But this could be, I think we all as a, as a society will have to grapple with what is real and where do we, how do we know that it's real? And, and that's, that's something, and that's not a, certainly not a political thing. That's just something that I think we all have to think about. Because if you can type in a prompt, come up with a script that comes from generative AI, and then uh, utilize uh, a program that does deep fakes, you can have anybody saying anything. And that's, that's something we have to be, we have to think about how are we going to grapple with that? Yeah, no, I'll just continue to go down this rabbit hole with you. I think today, yeah, please. <laughs> I think today I saw a headline um, and it was something along the lines of um, military, like special forces mm-hmm. want to use deep fakes as a, like when they interrogate mm-hmm. people, because they want to yeah. basically be like, Hey, here's your best friend over here that exactly. we have in another jail cell. And here's mm-hmm. him, you know, ratting on you. Famous, and like, yeah. it's like, we can't believe anything anymore. You're right. And right. it's, it's a scary world we're going into. Right. I, I don't know. I mean, I, like you said, we're, we're kind of off the rails here a little <laughs> bit, but I, I just don't, I, I guess right. as it, when it go back to education, I just really mm. wonder, like, mm. is it even important anymore to teach an essay? And I would say today, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. But if, everyone really starts to lean heavily on the future of mm. generative AI. Mm. I just kind of wonder like, so what's next? What do we focus on then as educators? And there's plenty of other stuff to focus on, but sure. um, I don't know. I, I just don't yeah, have I mean, I, I, I mean, I think you're asking the question right there and I know there's a many other ones attached to it, but you know, again, I, I think just in these early days of understanding this, what it feels like to me and, and please, I could be totally wrong about all 
this. But I, I, I would say that this is why we have to get our kids used to using it. And then again, using it ethically and thoughtfully and, you know, doing it in a way that um, is, you know, trying to do no harm because, and, and also being able to understand and consume what's out there. Because if we, if we just ban it, and this is casting no stones, but if we just ban it and then we don't talk about it and then we don't see, you know, effectively kind of meet them where they are, I think we're, we're not helping our, our students, we're not helping our society, we're not helping our country or the world by we have a bunch of people who just are unable to spot the differences or, or spot those deep fakes. And I think it just means I am hopeful. And again, I'm coming from a place of hope in this is that it will teach us to be better writers and to be better at what we do when we do it, because we are armed with all of human, all of human knowledge, not only on our phone, but be able to ask, I go back to my student who said, you know, it'll teach us to ask better questions. And I think that's the thing that I'm really interested in. Um, to get to better questions. Right. I do like that. And I, and really, yeah. if you actually yeah. hop in to chat GPT today, you can ask it one thing and mm-hmm. get one answer at another. And you can be like, all right, well, exactly. how can I better phrase this to use this tool right. more properly? Right. I, I can't help but keep thinking right. back to this clip. I, I've mm. seen it. You've probably seen it. It's on social media mm. going around. It's like, I think it was in the 90s. And it's, um, I want to say it was Brian Gumble and Katie Couric. And they're talking about like email addresses in the internet. And it's <laughs> yes, like, I have you seen that. this clip? Yeah. As I was doing that little tease. Oh, that's that right. little mark with the a and then the ring around it at see that's what i said mm-hmm. um katie said she thought it was about yeah oh but i'd never heard or it around i'd never heard it about. said i'd always seen around. the mark but never yeah. heard it said and then yeah. it sounded stupid when i said it violence at nbc <laughs> yeah, well, i heard it around big or about. in the lunchroom the see? Week. <laughs> there it is violence at nbc ge com i mean well, what, what allison what, should know what, what do you is say internet about anyway internet is uh that Massive computer right. network, mm-hmm. the one that's becoming really big now. And uh, I kind of, I kind of feel <laughs> yeah. like that's where we are with this right now. And yes. I would love to fast forward into the future and then listen to myself talk about this today. And I'm sure I'd sound like yes, idiot, exactly. You know, right. but right. I, I do think this is a pivotal tool that, of course, isn't just going to affect education, but journalism right. and every web story right. we read. And I think it already is in exactly. some ways. Um, right. So so it's going to be interesting. Well, uh, Ben, again, I really appreciate yep. uh, your input on this. Uh, tell me more about your school, what you guys are doing over there in New England. Like you said, so this is new and, yeah, no. and, and kind of your, I guess, mission statement, if you will. Yeah. Well, you know, what we really believe in, and, and first let me say thank you, Nick, for taking the time to speak with me as well. Um, you know, at the New England Innovation Academy, one of our biggest things that we, we talk about is that we want to uh, help our students understand ways to innovate and be entrepreneurs, but to do that with empathy, thoughtfulness, and thinking about the greater good. And then it's one of the pieces that really got me excited as um you know, I was over in Beijing for the last three years. I was the head of an international school there. Okay. It got me excited about coming back home was that this was an opportunity unlike any that I had seen in education where, um, you know, this is our school is essentially saying that we want to get kids ready for the future to be able to make products on their own. But to do that again with the thought through human centered design, with empathy, with a, a bit of um, elegance and beauty attached to it, that that, that helps out the world and that quite frankly, that they don't need, probably like the way that I view the world, I, they don't need to wait their quote unquote turn. You know, you don't have to be a 36 year old who's now a VP of product development that could get that, that, that thing across. That if you have an idea, you have a belief, you have something you're passionate about, we want to dive into that passion with our students and help them 
build their best version of whatever that might be a product, an idea, um, uh, a program, whatever it is. And that's really exciting. And so that was what I have found here at our schools that we have a lot of like-minded educators um, and also like-minded families and students that um, if we make good on our promise that our, our students will feel that they have agency in the world. And we know that so many students around, young people around the world don't feel like they have agency, that they don't feel that they're being heard or listened to, and that this is a place where um, we, we flip that and say, we have, we have to build this from your, with your input to get it right. And um, so our students, for better and worse, have a lot of agency here, and they, and they use their voice in a way that, quite frankly, took me until maybe I was a junior in college to feel that comfortable coming up to an adult and saying, hey, this is my thought. What do you think we can do? And so anyway, you yeah. know, I, I, that's exciting. That's a really, it's uh, that, that idea of entre- in, in, uh, innovation and entrepreneurship built into a, a really wonderful curriculum that's built on um, interdisciplinary and integrated curriculum. Um, the sky's the limit for our students. Well, and clearly you guys are living that because as soon as this AI conversation started, you brought your students in. It wasn't just right. like the teachers talking. So I, right. I like that. You say New England Innovation Academy. Are y'all yes. in which specific state? And do you serve multiple yeah, yeah. states? Y'all cross borders there? Yeah. So we are boarding and day school. So right now we're about 100 kids. Uh, 30, 30 of our kids are boarding from all over the world. Uh, 70 of our kids are, are day students from the local area. And we're in Massachusetts, Marlboro, Massachusetts, about half an hour outside of Boston. So okay. it's a really nice spot here. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's been wonderful. And then, you know, Nick, I just thought of one thing that I just, I would be really remiss if I didn't say this. One of the other pieces about generative AI that I and other people I was talking to our head of teaching and learning a couple weeks ago is the thought that this can help bring in voices that might have had a more difficult time being a part of a conversation, whether in an essay or in written form. So our students who might have some, you know, some form of uh, disordered learning, might be dyslexic, whatever it might be, mm-hmm, this yeah. is a way where you can get, you can be involved in a way that you might not have been able to before. And that is, that is truly beautiful. And, that I, and I, that's something I get really, really excited about um, and think about all the young people that I've worked with, that we've all worked with over the years, that how something like this, when used again, ethically and morally and thoughtfully could really be supportive of what they're doing. So yeah, just something 100%. We, one piece that we're also really thinking about here. If somebody wants to kind of check out what you guys are doing, what's the best way to do that? Go to a website or are you guys on social yeah, media come, or what? Come right to our website. We're on social media, um, Nia Academy. Um, you can find us uh, on really everywhere. Um, and we're just out here in the world trying to make a, <laughs> a new school coming out of COVID, making a name for itself and just being involved. And, um, you know, we, we're excited to be part of the conversation. Lots of great people and students here um, who want to do want to do good work in the world. Well, Ben Farrell, I appreciate this uh, thoughtful conversation and best of luck to you guys. Are you ready for today's pop quiz? Yes, I am, Nick. Let's do it. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Oh, um, you know, if I would say as a humanities guy, of course, I would lean that way. But I think we have a subject here um, called uh, Innovation uh, Studio. And it's a way that pulls in um, uh, kind of integrated curriculum from around our school. So for our very specific school, it's, I would say, this idea of innovation and building that mindset as, as they start. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Mm, I think we have to continue always to remember that kindness and empathy matter and that we have to focus on that. And I think we have to focus on that now more than ever, as so many of us, uh, you know, adults included, um, have had a really challenging last couple of years. 
And so this idea that we don't have to agree on everything, but we can disagree with kindness and thoughtfulness and we can still work together. What does every child deserve? Safety. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? I think that our educators have been asked to do so much um, that they're asked to not only teach, but their counselors, their their parents, they're a, a safe uh, physical space, a safe emotional space. Um, I think that wearing all of those hats and not burning out and being able to take care of ourselves is, I think, the biggest challenge for our, educa- for our educators. Excuse me. What's the best gift to give an educator? <laughs> My initial one is time. It's <laughs> a common answer, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, gift of time. But I think, again, just uh, that, that the gift that people know what is being done in, to benefit others, just to, just to know that's part of what we do. Which teacher changed your life? teacher didn't change my life um i can think of uh two that come to mind my sixth grade teacher mr gruen who um believed in me and pushed me along and at that point i'd written a i think a 20 page handwritten paper on uh the d-day landings and he was there with me and going through that and and allowed my love of writing and even though i wasn't great at it um and history to come together and then i would say um my two of my college professors um margaret mcfadden and charlie bassett who believed in me when i didn't believe in myself and um i ended up i I wrote a book a couple of years ago and i can imagine that um even though mr bassett professor bassett had passed away you might (laughs) would be proud of me maybe rolling over his grave a little bit but really proud that i had taken um what he had urged me to do to heart and finally done what I said I was going to do all those years. Before. That's cool. What's the title of the book? Um, it's called The Unseen uh, by by me, by Ben Farrell. Is it education related? or? Uh, well, <laughs> one of my other passions here. And it's kind of a, uh, a young adult science fiction um, fantasy thriller. Nice. Yeah. So it was a lot of fun to write. Yeah. All right. And uh, last question. Which book mm. have you read, love, and want to recommend to our listeners? It was challenging over those couple of years in China to get some books in. So oh, I'm, yeah. I'm, a bit, I'm a bit behind in my up-to-date reading. Um, you know, I think, honestly, I, I'm just, I have three young kids, nine, six, and four, and I'm sitting down to read The Hobbit with them pretty soon. So that's a good I, one. I think sort of the, the, what, you know, the allegories of what that, what that book means mean, meant a lot to me growing up and um, may I think for others too. Well, again, Ben Farrell, uh, we appreciate you joining us on the Class Dismissed podcast. Um, Ben's with the New England Innovation Academy. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Nick. Wonderful to talk to you. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>